This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. What's the best way to reduce? Eat plenty or starve yourself? 30 pounds in just 18 weeks, Jenny Craig totally worked. I love to eat, but overeating made it impossible to lose weight. That's my body work. wants bread, and I'm going to give my body what it wants. Oh my <laughs> so I naturally. Medical studies prove that overeating is the number one reason for weight gain. If you eat a healthy weight, you'll lose natural weight and bring your weight down. Overeating is losing weight. Weight. Welcome to Fat Camp. A podcast that throws a comedy eye over our societal obsession of diets. Now, a little disclaimer, we are not health experts, but we are fad diet connoisseurs. I'm your host, comedian Grace Mulvey. And I'm your co-host, Connor Dowling. Welcome to Fad Camp. Hey everybody, welcome to a brand new episode of Fad Camp. Grace, I am so excited to reintroduce our next guest. She is a fad camp all-star, the very patron saint of this show, and without her book, Anti-Diet, Grace and I would probably be in an actual fat camp somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For sure I would be, yeah. Yeah, she's here to save us from raw cabbage cleanses and all sorts of (laughs) snake oil. There would simply be no fad camp without our brilliant guest today, Christy Harrison. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that introduction. I'm I'm glad my work has been helpful to you. Absolutely. <laughs> I tried to woo until after Christy had stopped singing. I was like, oh my God. Like if you saw me right now, I'm just so excited <laughs> that she's with us. Um, yeah, welcome back to the show, Christy. We are just like delighted to be here. And also the fact that we got like to read The Wellness Trap already. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? We got early editions, guys. No, no offense. But we like, got a you know. sneak peek. Grace, can you believe we're in a situation where we were once inspired by Christie's first book and now we're getting a sneak peek at her second at, book? Like, this is incredible. At the next one. Yeah, yeah. and I really needed it because I felt diet culture sucking me back in. And I was yeah. like, oh, I need time. a new book from Christy. <laughs> well, um, thank Christy, you. I'm so glad. While we're before we kind of get into like the real nitty gritty questions, because actually, like me and Connor were talking beforehand, there's so much that the book covers that we were trying to like actually condense it into a few questions. But I did notice that I came across some terms that I had never heard before in the book, right? So I'm going to do a little quick fire round with you here, Christy, okay? Mm -hmm. Just for you to give me just a very short explanation of these terms, right? The first is GMI, Global Wellness Institute. What is that? Yeah, so the Global Wellness Institute is a, um, it's sort of an industry group, but also sort of a research uh, group that tracks the wellness industry's growth and development. And, you know, it's an independent organization, like an NGO, um, but it also has ties to the wellness industry. So it's kind of an an interesting position, I would say. Um, But there's, they do a lot of research on like, the market development of the industry and sort of the different sectors and how much, you know, what what the market share is of the different sectors. And I think that's really helpful information. So I've included them and their data for that. Okay, perfect. Okay. And the next term coming out of left field, porno foods. What does porno foods mean? Uh, yeah, so porno foods is a really food negative statement, obviously, and sort of mm-hmm. sex negative too, actually, um, that was used by one of the sort of early, some call him like the father of of wellness, um, sort of an early writer and thinker on the idea of wellness um, named Donald B. Ardell. And he was writing in the 1970s and that was sort of the the text that launched the wellness movement as we know it, I think, the contemporary wellness movement. Um, he was very kind of anti-food, certain kinds of foods, processed foods. He called porno foods. Uh, he was very anti-fat as well. He had some really terrible fat negative statements in the book and like about fat doctors, very dismissive of fat doctors, like just very sort of diet culture all around. And I think that that was, that book was sort of foundational to what became contemporary wellness culture and sort of the ideas we have today about wellness. So I thought that was important to include. 
Oh, totally. And also, I want to reclaim the word as a sex positive person. I want porno <laughs> foods. I'm a sex and food positive person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm literally going to be like yes. having a porno food night and it's a good thing. Um, okay, uh, the next uh, term, charcoal water. I had never heard of charcoal water in my I have. life. I have. Have definitely. you? Mm. Oh yeah, I've had it for sure. Yeah. Connor. <laughs> <laughs> so are we just talking like bits of charcoal put into water and like, it sounds like something Oliver Twist had to drink. What are we talking like? Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't do a deep dive into it in the book. I That yeah. was sort of just one example of like wellness culture stuff that people can um, be exposed to or to do. And it's, yeah, it's, it's you know, considered a detox. It's believed to be a detox. It doesn't have any real science behind it. Um, but, you know, this idea that like charcoal will absorb the toxins in your body. And so putting activated charcoal into water is somehow going to you know, detoxify your body as a, as a trope of wellness culture. And yeah, no, no good evidence behind that. You don't need to do charcoal water. Yeah. Definitely does kind of sound like an Oliver Twist thing. It does. <laughs> like he was made eat gruel and have charcoal water. I yeah. also feel like sometimes the toxins just sound better than that. Um, and <laughs> also the last term, which I just really loved, was expensive pee. And mm. <laughs> that term came from when you were talking about supplements. And I just want to say it really made me laugh um, in the book. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, it's it's the, you know, I didn't make that up, actually. It's something that's been around for a while when talking about supplements that, you know, if your body has more of something that it needs, it just pees it out. And so, you know, supplements often are referred to as giving you expensive pee. Um, the exceptions to those things are, you know, the things that we don't pee out that we can, like, store more of and sometimes store more of than we need in harmful ways, like... Um, certain fat soluble vitamins or iron or things like that. So, um, but yeah, most most vitamins, most multivitamins are just giving you expensive pee. I also think I'll take that term for whenever I have like a night out and I've drank too much red wine. <laughs> Next day, <laughs> yeah, like, going go. off to my expensive pee, that little yes. Merlot pee. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing that for me, Christy. <laughs> oh yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, even just when you talk about the activated charcoal as well, like, I think this book is particularly interesting to me because I have fallen uh, prey to so many of these like wellness mm. fads and mm. things like activated charcoal say that, oh, you put it in your body, it'll absorb all of the toxins. Some of these like foods and supplements are given these almost like uh, magical superhuman kind of qualities. Like I remember um, years ago, I was I was told that if you got, and maybe I told Grace this before on the podcast, but maybe you came across this in your travels as well, Christy, if you get a bunch of chia seeds, which by the way, mm. I hate chia seeds now, um, but back then I was open to them. And uh, if you get like a, a full glass of water and like put like a quarter of a glass worth of chia seeds into that, overnight, the chia seeds will absorb all of the water and it turns into a sort of gel and it's called chia <laughs> gel and it, it's like frog spawn. And it's believed that if you drink it, it will go through your body like a Pac-Man, you know, just eating <laughs> all of the bad things out of your digestive tract. And I did this so much that I felt unwell. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> that's just a little, yeah, that's just a little aside. I also later read that it can drastically lower your blood pressure as well. So that might have something to do with it. But mm. in relation to your book, you know, it's called The Wellness Trap. And as you, t as you go further into uh, the chapters, you talk about how people actually can get caught in this wellness trap. Can you describe what exactly that is? Yeah. So I, you know, I was inspired to write the book by seeing so many people I worked with and so many people in my audience falling into these wellness traps. And, you know, I think diet culture is so much more <coughs> above board in so many ways and even like recognize not above board being like it, that it's good or anything but above board being like you kind of know it when you see it or you learn to know it when you see it and you know with my first book I really like emphasized the sneakiness of diet culture and sort of how it likes to hide as wellness and I think a lot of people sort of get that but I think there's more insidious ways that wellness culture hooks people and can trap people into disordered eating, um, body shame, and also taking lots of unnecessary supplements or doing lots of unproven and potentially dangerous practices that are actually, you know, quite harmful in a lot of ways. So to people's relationship with food and their mental health, but also to their, their physical health. And so I've really seen so many people fall into these wellness traps, um, through going on diets and thinking they need to detox and 
you know, being told that they have these conditions that don't actually really exist, even though they're based on a grain of truth or based on some real symptoms like, you know, chronic candida or adrenal fatigue or leaky gut syndrome. None of those things is a real scientifically validated medical diagnosis, but people are being told that they have these things by wellness providers, alternative health providers, and then the prescription to quote unquote cure these so-called diseases or illnesses or, you know, conditions um, is you know, lots of restrictive dieting, taking all these foods out, you know, avoiding gluten, avoiding dairy, avoiding nightshades, avoiding this, avoiding that, um, and taking huge amounts of supplements. And sometimes also doing practices that are extremely uh, dangerous and untested and unproven. Like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow recently was in the news for talking about her rectal um Ozone therapy, which is one thing that what comes is up that? sometimes with these. Oh my God, it's it's. T- I mean, so ozone therapy is exposure to ozone, which is actually a toxic chemical. Okay, um, which is harmful to lungs and to skin, and you know, has a lot of potential dangers. And the FDA has said, in the U.S. has said, you know, this people shouldn't be exposed to this, and it's you know, it's banned basically um, in the U.S. So she but decided to go rectally with it. She decided to go rectally because she's got to go to the extremes, <laughs> and she's got to talk about the extremes in order to sell her products too. Wow. Oh, completely. Okay. And also, like when I first heard the term ozone, I thought, <laughs> well, if the ozone is in the air, does she just mean that she like exposes her arse to the air? <laughs> I know that's that's called ridiculous. that's actually called perineal sunning. Yes, exactly. That's the thing too. That's a wellness thing. But you know what? Yeah. That actually makes more sense than what it ended up being. So thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> for letting us know that. And um, in saying that, I suppose about even with Goop, um, you have some interesting things about it to say um about goop and um i know gwena paltrow has really lent into the whole uh, wellness thing to bring it back even to like how do you think say influencers or instagram has really brought about this wellness culture because i just want to bring up one person that you mentioned in the book ali maxine um because she had been diagnosed with um an inflammatory bowel uh, mm-hmm. disease early in her life And then it was through Instagram, actually, that brought her around to almost disordered eating because so many influencers saying they had healed their chronic illnesses through these sort of like, I don't know, all these kind of wellness products. Um, Some Mm -hmm. saying they'd overcome like cancer through food and alternative medicine alone. So then she ended up going into this very restrictive diet that she had never done before. So could you maybe even like talk a bit about how Instagram and influencers have brought this about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Maxine's story was so um, telling. And so it's something I've heard so many times, you know, people getting, falling down these rabbit holes through coming to wellness on Instagram or on, you know, TikTok now and other platforms. Um, And it's sort of by design, I think. So, you know, social media, the goal of social platforms is to maximize engagement, is to keep people on the platforms as long as possible, clicking, liking, sharing, commenting, getting into comment wars, whatever, because mm. that keeps people on the platform to expose them to more advertising and therefore makes the companies more money. And this is not like a conspiracy theory. This is just how it works. The yeah. companies will admit that that's their business model. Um, but unfortunately, the thing that maximizes engagement the most is, you know, anger, moral outrage, fear, disgust, like all of these negative emotions and novelty as well. So when you combine all those things, right, novelty, fear, outrage, disgust, you often get sort of a perfect recipe for mis and disinformation to thrive and especially wellness mis and disinformation because it preys on people's fear. It preys on, you know, people not having answers to their symptoms, their chronic health conditions and the flaws in the healthcare system Mm -hmm. of, you know, certainly the U.S. where it's a for-profit system. But I think, you know, countries with public health systems have their own issues, right? Long waiting lists, sort of dismissal by doctors, I think is a common thing in the Western healthcare system in general, you know, Western healthcare in general. Um, And so people feel really unheard and dismissed and underserved by their healthcare systems. And then these influencers are right there being like, well, you know, the only thing that cured my cancer was cutting out all these foods and doing Mm. all this, you know, bizarre sort of these bizarre therapies that are unproven and whatever. 
And that stuff is novel and it sort of hits that button of like, ooh, what's this? This is new. It's uh, fear-inducing, right? It makes people fear, you know, oftentimes those those kinds of ideas are paired with conspiracy theories about the healthcare mm-hmm. system or big pharma or, you know, doctors don't want you to know this. They're hiding the cure for cancer, things like that. Um, and then it's also, you know, induces anger and moral outrage, I think, in various ways, because there are people who are like, what is this? This is bullshit. Like, who, who's, do, you know, and they're retweeting or sharing yes, and being like, yeah. look at this shit, right? Yeah. And expecting their followers to all be like, yeah, this sucks. <coughs> and then inevitably <coughs> there are people in their audience who are like, oh, wait, I can do rectal ozone therapy? Or, oh, wait, this, <laughs> yeah. sign yeah, me up. this chia seed is supposed <laughs> to vacuum me out? Like, yeah, sign me yeah. up. And so, you know, it's that's how— it spreads, and I think um, we see we see examples of this where the algorithms drive people to more and more extremes. You know, trying to maximize engagement, trying to, um, you know, just amplifying the the stuff that keeps people on the platforms. It's driving people from you know innocent searches for healthy eating or a workout or something like that to extreme diets and pro eating disorder content and even yeah. self harm content like. It's this is happening across platforms. It's especially been documented with young girls on Instagram and TikTok. But you know, all of us, I think, have probably fallen prey to that to some degree, where we just are down a rabbit hole, and suddenly it seems normal to do some of these things that might have seemed really out there, you know, weeks or months ago before we kind of took all these steps down the wellness rabbit hole. Absolutely. Well, you know, like, I mean, the social media aspect of it is rampant. Like, I I defy like. Anyone listening to this show, if you go onto your Instagram now, scroll three posts down and someone will be <clears throat> trying to sell you some form of wellness product or yeah. mm-hmm. lifestyle. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny actually because you mentioned it in the in um, the wellness trap. The aesthetic as well of, of wellness is a very, like, even if you watch any of those videos, it's very big open spaces clean oh it's attractive yeah yeah it's so attractive it's incredibly white let's also say that as well there's there's a real whitewashing of all of this on top of it um and it makes it so alluring and as you mentioned in the wellness trap it also sort of like sells really that wellness is a, a rich person's game from what mm-hmm. i can tell and i think you mentioned also an article from the cut which had a headline in that like about that in um april 2020 do you think really that um, wellness is kind of for wealthier people or kind of like a one of those kind of aspirational lifestyles? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it has historically and, and still is for wealthier people, people in the sense that, you know, who has time to do all this yeah. stuff, right? Who has time to do their, you know, however many hours long beauty routine and workout routine and then hook up to an IV drip and then go in their infrared sauna <laughs> yes. and then take their activated charcoal and do, you know, do their meal delivery service that's giving them like no food and all of that stuff. Um, And I think it is aspirational in the sense that like that is held up as being attainable or at least useful to everybody. And even to people who have very little or, you know, not much money at all, who are being kind of pulled into spending money they don't have on these products with the promise of healing, with the promise of feeling better, right? You know, and so we see, like, I've I've definitely (coughs) talked to people who were like, yeah, I spent money I didn't have. I went into, didn't have, I went into credit card debt. I was, you know, having to choose between rent and food, but I wasn't really eating much anyway because on these wellness culture diets, like, you don't really have to eat much. You know, it's like, it's, it's insidious. And I think it, hooks people into, you know, because the whole thing about aspirational marketing is like it presents it presents whatever product is associated with this image of wealth as like the way to attain that, you know, the way to attain beauty, youth, success, yeah. <clears throat> health, whatever, whatever it is you desire is available through this product and like these images that are used to sell the product reinforce it. And I think that's very true with wellness culture. And, you know, you talk about like the big open spaces and lots of white space and it's like, who at some level doesn't sort of want more space in our lives, right? I feel like we all are so put upon and just cluttered and like busy and overwhelmed. And there's just so much, you know, I think that's why like Marie Kondo is so popular. The the whole decluttering idea is like we want to declutter. There's something really appealing about that. And so when you like juxtapose these big white spaces where it looks like nobody's actually living, you know, but yeah. the, but it's somehow cozy and comfy at the same time. It's like, oh, I could have that. I could have yeah. that kind of a space in my life, you know. Um, it makes me even like 
question. I mean, if someone say Greta Paltrow's wealth is still doing things like, again, I don't understand what that ozone thing is, but apparently exposing her arse to the sun is like, it, there's no end goal here that you can never be yeah. well enough. Like, where's the line where you're like, you've achieved wellness now. <laughs> you can stop well, buying right. the products. There's never an end game to this. Um, totally. And actually the one thing that you mentioned there, because I thought it was very interesting when you said, who has the time? It, that is one thing that I noticed. Another um, example you gave in the book was uh, Dawn Sarah, a therapist who talked about how, because she kind of got into this maybe trap of being like, oh, she wanted no chemicals in her food or, you know, she became very aware of what was in her food and she wanted to be all organic and natural sort of words that kind of mean nothing in a way. And then she started to question her everyday household items. So suddenly she was like, my cleaning supplies need to be without Mm -hmm. chemicals or, and next thing she had to start making stuff. I mean, again, who has the time to make their own soap? And if you do, if you're listening, fair play to you, but I don't, (laughs) like, I barely wash my hair for this interview. So you need, like, I just wonder again, who can actually you're always going to be failing if you're striving for this in a way. Yeah, that's right. There's just endless ways to feel like you're falling short. And yeah, Dawn's interview was really interesting to me because, you know, she's someone in a larger body who's done a lot of work to like towards fat acceptance. And, you know, that's part of her like work in the world now. And some of, you know, a lot of what she had to do sort of personally to make peace with her body. And yet, you know, she was so pulled into this wellness trap and sort of feeling like, she could be the quote unquote good fatty and like, you know, avoid weight stigma by being super well and like performing wellness in a certain way. And, you know, she told me that like the wellness stuff is even more insidious than the diet culture stuff. Like she still to this day has these little pop-ups in her brain when she goes to eat something like, are you going to eat that? That's going to kill you. Don't take a bite, you know? And like she'd never had that when it came to diet stuff. And yeah, it is such a slippery slope because, you know, when she got into like, she said she was like making her own towels, which I don't even. (laughs) Wow. I mean, amazing. You you know, you get so, (laughs) right. I mean, amazing. But, you know, she didn't have the time for that either. And she said inevitably she would have to like pop out and get laundry detergent from a store because she would run out of her homemade one. And then, you know, feel guilty that she was like washing her clothes and all these cancer-causing chemicals, supposedly cancer-causing chemicals or whatever. That's shocking. And I think the way you say that, you know, the wellness uh, side of things is almost that bit more insidious. I think that makes this book so much more interesting, even because it's really such a new evolution um, around diet culture, you know, because even when we first read... um, anti-diet and sort of, you know, went down the diet culture rabbit hole and sort of like, uh, you know, peered into the matrix, so to speak, um, <laughs> uh, to see to, to see that it was all just, you know, um, full of lies. This is like, really not many people are, are kind of pulling the curtain back right now because it is just, it's kind of hiding in plain sight in a lot of ways. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, but it's healthy. And like, who can argue with like a little bit of yoga and, you know, a green juice here and there. And it's like, no, actually, if you go deeper, you'll see that it's the very same thing. And totally. I, and I think, you know, at, at a certain point in the book, you're talking about how wellness culture kind of co-opts these restrictive uh, behaviors and uh, even re- co-opts disordered eating behaviors. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's like when I was writing the first book and thinking about diet culture, my theory and, you know, what I sort of found in the evidence with that was that wellness culture isn't, or wellness is in some ways the new guise of diet culture. Like the diets cloak themselves as wellness. And, you know, it's like, this is about your well-being. This is not about vanity. This is not about weight loss just for looks. This is actually, you know, taking care of yourself. And that's true. Like that's very much an aspect of diet and wellness culture that's very intertwined. But I also found in researching this book that it's more of a symbiotic relationship, I think, between the two. So wellness culture is like the cloak that diet culture disguises itself in. But then diet culture is the foundational belief system or one of, you know, part of the foundational belief system for wellness culture. And it's kind of built on top of this foundation. And then of course, diet culture itself is built on a foundation of anti-fat bias and racism and, you know, racist beliefs about bodies that go back to slavery, as Sabrina Strings talks about in her book, Fearing the Black Body. So like all of it is, you know, it's built on these layers of oppressive systems um, and problematic, um, you know, cultural values. But um, 
yeah, so when it comes to wellness culture, you know, it's it's like really incorporating diet culture within its foundational belief system. And what I define diet culture as is a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue, which you definitely see in wellness culture, even if it's not explicit, right? Even if you're not explicitly saying thinness is better. Um, It promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, you know, health status, moral status, social status. We definitely see that play out in wellness culture as well. Um, demonizes some foods and food groups while elevating others. And that's like sort of the primary way we see wellness culture manifesting, I think, when when thinking about food. It's this is good, this is bad, this food's toxic, this food's clean. You know, these are the the, like chemicals that are going to kill you. These are the, you know, foods that are going to save you or whatever. And then diet culture and wellness culture also both oppress people who don't match their supposed picture of health. And then, you know, wellness culture, I think, has other tenets to it, too, like not just about food and exercise and body size, but also denigrating conventional medicine and idolizing alternative, integrative, natural, holistic, you know, quote unquote, approaches to healing. Um, And there's like this particular reverence for anything that's deemed non-Western and it's perceived as ancient, you know, it's like this ancient tradition that you know, people have been doing for millennia. There doesn't need to be science behind it because it's ancient. And like, that's so, it's often such a twisted view of what these cultural practices and healing traditions actually are. It's so cherry picked and, you know, there's a lot of cultural appropriation, I think, inherent in wellness culture um, because of this lionization of anything perceived as ancient and non-Western. But then also there's this individualism, I think, at the heart of wellness culture that is about, you know, individual choices and ignoring social determinants of health that really have a greater impact on population well-being than individual behaviors. Um, But that also, you know, this individualism, I think, contributes to the cultural appropriation because it stresses the importance of the individual's ability to pick and choose what works for you, you know, design your own personalized wellness plan or whatever. And that can result in taking these healing modalities out of context and just appropriating things without really knowing the roots or the origin. Um, And then, you know, the social media stuff we talked about, I think um, dovetails with wellness culture in a lot of ways too, because, you know, in wellness culture, because of this sort of primacy on individual choice, it's like anecdotes and social media testimonials, well, primacy on individual choice and the denigration of conventional healthcare and science, I should say too, you know, anecdotes and social media testimonials are then given more weight than sound scientific evidence. And, you know, like science is sort of twisted and used when it's, when it serves the needs of wellness culture or purveyors of, you know, wellness mis and disinformation. It's like, ooh, this study said, you know, that this thing works. But then meanwhile, the study is in cells in a Petri dish or in rats or in like 10 people, you know, that's yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, actually yeah. translatable to real human populations. It's not something that should be used to guide clinical evidence or clinical decision making. And yet, you know, they're using that to sort of justify um, certain wellness products, practices and products when it serves them and pseudoscience as well, you know, sort of making up scientific sounding terms that don't really have any meaning. But then also in a lot of corners of wellness culture, and sometimes even with the same person or purveyor of wellness culture, you'll have like this denigration of science, like, well, science doesn't know everything and science, you know, can't explain the healing benefits of this thing because it's more mystical and like, you know, sort of, um, it's like escapes the the fingers of science or something like that, you know. And um, I should say, like, a lot of this has a small, you know, some kernel of truth to it, like some basis in reality. Like, there are problems with the healthcare system, as we talked about. There mm. are issues with science. Like, science, you know, is a limited system. It's, a, you know, it's a, a practice and a method for getting as close as possible to the truth and trying to... Um, you know, separate out what's like the placebo effect and beliefs people have about something and those have real physical impact versus what's coming from a treatment itself. And I think it's important to know that, but, you know, science like isn't always conducted perfectly or, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases studies are shoddy or even fraudulent and, you know, they can't always measure, like there are potentially some things that can't be measured by science, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's real, but then I think, there's this twisting and sort of, 
you know, the, taking these grains of truth and this real information and then twisting it in the service of selling people something that doesn't ha that has even less good evidence behind it and that has even more potential for harm and, you know, sort of conditioning people to ignore the problems and pitfalls with wellness culture solutions by making them think, you know, there's this grand conspiracy with conventional medicine and science that doesn't want them to know the real answers that are, you know, just lying in the natural world. And it's, you know, you have to get to these natural things to really, um, to really heal or whatever. Yeah. I also think the conspiracy theory side of it as well is quite interesting because I think people latch on to conspiracies when they go through something difficult in their life, you know, mm -hmm. because when something in the world happens that doesn't make sense, they need to create a story to help it make sense because we use stories to help us make sense of the world. And I, mm -hmm. think, I think with the wellness side of things, if you're having a traumatic experience with, say, the healthcare system, you know, you've lost a loved one or you've been through some, or the doctors can't find out what's wrong with you yet, you're, you know, you've mm -hmm. no energy of course you're going to look for other answers as well, right? And totally. you're going to get sucked into someone on Instagram who says they experienced the same thing as you or, and here's how they healed themselves and here's their book about how they healed themselves, right? Totally. Yeah, I think it's it's preying on people who are vulnerable in so many ways. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting, the the research on conspiracy theories, it's like <laughs> just like you said, you know, it helps people make sense of the world. It gives people a sense of purpose and a sense of, you know, maybe control over a situation that's not easily controllable. Exactly. And in moments of, you know, sort of mass um, panic or difficulty, like the COVID-19 pandemic, totally. for example, like, you know, people are like understandably scared and anxious and fearful for their health and their loved ones. And in some ways it's easier in that situation to latch on to this idea of like a nefarious global cabal, yes. you know, creating this yeah. fake idea of because a virus. Because how else could is. could something so inexplicable have happened at random? Yeah. You know, that's, so let's blame someone external who, who claims to have answers and be in charge and let's latch on to something else that claims to have more, I don't know, comforting answers or something. Totally. Yeah. It's like, it's very understandable that that would be something people yeah. fall into in these moments. And then, you know, wellness culture, I think because of so much pre-existing, like there's a lot of kind of conspiracy-ish thinking in wellness culture going back yes. decades, you know, right? This idea, even from the very beginning, like this idea that, you know, quote unquote, porno foods are being created to like destroy us or whatever, sure. destroy our health, yeah. you know? Uh, to manage the population and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like blaming, you know, quote unquote, big food or blaming so-called big pharma or, you know, the healthcare system in general for all of these ills. And again, there's like a grain of truth to some of that, right? You know, there are some shady practices that happen in pharmaceutical research or in, you know, food, like large-scale food production. And we can't let that like take over and sort of cloud our view of the entire system and make it seem like all of these players are really bad actors and out to, you know, destroy humanity. Totally. Because um, then that just makes us vulnerable to so much yes. worse, so much worse stuff than, you know, having sort of an appropriate skepticism of institutions and official accounts and whatever, but also, you know, like using what, what benefit they have to give us. Yes. Um, and sort of like having a more nuanced view of things. Yes. And not, not going full extreme into it and letting control, letting it control our lives, which is much like, exactly. I think is it's a lot of how we can approach the sort of the things that come from diet culture, you know, asking yourself, is it controlling your life? Is it making you unwell? Is it alienating you from your friends and family? Well then maybe, you know, you need to examine it a bit better. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights, or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. Mm -hmm.
Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to hear more bonus exclusive content for FadCamp, make sure to log on to Headstuff Plus and for as little as a fiver a month, you can support our show and other shows in the Headstuff Podcast Network and hear exclusive content from FadCamp. That's bonus episodes, photos, videos. It's a really good time. So we hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Yeah. So what shocked you the most in your research for this book? Yeah, I've gotten that question a lot and it's been interesting to think about like, you know, I feel like I'm fairly unshockable at this point, okay. um, just having seen so much that is kind of shocking. And um, But I think one of the things that was sort of even worse and more, more like surprising than I had thought, because I knew a little bit about this, but, you know, the these false diagnoses, what I call dubious diagnoses, where they're based on a grain of potential truth, but, you know, blown out into all this misinformation, like adrenal fatigue or leaky gut syndrome yeah. or chronic candida. You know, I knew that all those things were, were things to be skeptical of, but when, until I started researching them, you know, deeply for this book, I didn't realize just how insidious they were and just how sort of pervasive they were in a lot of corners of the wellness world, you know, and even, even some corners where you would think people were a little bit more science minded and and not as susceptible to this stuff. So like functional and integrative medicine, you know, where these are, um, forms of medicine that sort of marry alternative medicine with conventional Western medicine. And a lot of the people who practice them are MDs, you know, medical doctors, like have this real legit medical training. Um, and yet they're sort of grasping onto these dubious diagnoses and mm. pushing these spurious cures, you know, these these cures that don't actually have any sort of real good evidence behind them to so many people. And, you know, just I talked to so many people for the book and so many people who, you know, in my background research didn't even make it into the book, but just shared their stories with me and just found so many people who had encountered providers like this who just labeled everyone they met as having chronic candida or having a mold allergy or having a, um, you know, having adrenal fatigue or whatever it is, and then proceeding to put them on these really strict diets, again, with no real good evidence behind them, these intense supplement regimens that were just causing far more harm to the people I spoke with than, than good. And it took so long for these folks to be able to pull themselves out of that space because, you know, when you find a provider who is really empathetic and seems to get it and doesn't dismiss your symptoms and doesn't make you feel like it's all in your head and is like, trust me, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Like, that's such a relief. And I should say, like, I'm someone with multiple chronic illnesses and chronic conditions myself where, you know, when it took me so long to get diagnosed with a lot of the things I have and I would have loved that, you know, like I would have loved to find, I did find in some of the more functional and integrative people I worked with did find, you know, ones who said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to figure this out. Like, trust me, we're not going to just, you know, slap a bandaid on this or just pop, you know, tell you to pop a pill or whatever. We're going to actually get to the root cause of these symptoms. And for me and for so many of the people I talked with, it turns out they didn't get to the root cause, right? There wasn't actually a solution that that I found or that a lot of these folks found. Instead, there were misdiagnoses or missed diagnoses, right? Things that were actually going on that the provider didn't um, identify or things that were, you know, labels that were given to us that turned out to be wrong. And then a treatment plan that was based on this false diagnosis yeah. that ultimately wasn't helpful. Um, and that just feels like so rampant to me and such an unexplored and sort of under-discussed part of all of this. Because I think there are good providers out there who are more integrative and functional in their approach. And the sort of basis of those systems, you know, and like related systems like lifestyle medicine or um, other things that sort of like claim to be holistic and kind of bringing together the best of Western medicine and alternative medicine, um, you know, the alternative medicine influence on those systems, I think, really um, taints them and makes them not super reliable or trustworthy. You know, there's so much emphasis on cutting out foods without good evidence. There's emphasis on some treatments that really have no good validity and, you know, in some cases might make people feel good or help people um, just manage symptoms better and that's great. And I'm not here to like 
you know, denigrate that or try to take that away from anyone. But I think, you know, there's rampant cultural appropriation that's happening too of like, you know, prescribing herbs or prescribing, you know, like Ayurvedic treatments or whatever it might be without a lot of really deep knowledge of the system that that comes from. And I think that can cause harm both, you know, in terms of the person receiving the care, not getting what they need and getting things that are, you know, not appropriate for what they're dealing with, but also to, you know, harms to the cultures that are being appropriated from. Um, and so that's, I think, a, a piece of this too. But, you know, I've I've been researching this for a while and seeing kind of the ascendance of integrative and functional medicine as like, you know, things that so many people are looking for. And and I see, I hear so many people say, yeah, well, I don't want to go to just a conventional Western doctor. I want someone who's more holistic and integrative in their approach because, you know, there's a justifiable kind of idea that that's going to help them be more heard and understood and get like the care that they need and deserve. And there is a lot of empathy available in those spaces that I think is not in a conventional healthcare system where you have like 15 minutes to see your doctor, you know, and they're just going to kind of rush through it because they have to. Um, but I think the solution is not to turn towards these systems, this, these alternative forms of medicine or integrative forms of medicine that are um, potentially doing even more harm. I think the solution is to fix the conventional healthcare system and make it give people the care that they really need and deserve. Um, and, you know, while also trying to save them from the harm that comes from some of these really unproven and out there treatments. When you talk about the medical side of things, I find that to be a particularly challenging subject, you know, to broach with, you know, loved ones and friends who may be sort of caught in this kind of wellness trap. You know, how do you kind of propose we do that because like you say you don't want to take away the thing that if you feel like they are getting some sort of um value or some relief from something but if you know someone who's they've cut this out of their diet and they've cut that and they're seeing this specialist and they're taking these pills and they're spending all their money and time and feeling like they're never really doing enough to combat their ailments like what what do you recommend or what what, what has been your kind of experience with that yeah, it's really tricky. And I, I don't always, you know, I feel like I'm holding two things in mm. writing this book yes. and really tried to walk this line carefully where, you know, there's one part of me and one sort of um, side of it that's like, you know, this is all bullshit, tear it down. But then there's the other kind of wiser, more nuanced side that's the side that I would have wanted to hear from when I was really in it with this wellness stuff that's like, hey, like, it's understandable why you're attracted to this. I get it. There are some things that might make you feel better in the short term, perhaps. And, you know, is this helpful in the long term? Like, let's look at it. And I think that's the side that needs to sort of come to the fore and like drive the conversation. If you're having conversations like that with loved ones where, you know, you're curious, you're empathetic, you're showing up and being there for them, even if they're like, you know, and it's tough too, because if you're someone who's struggled with your own disordered eating or your own relationship, like, you know, your own falling into the wellness trap and you're trying to get out of it, sometimes you do need to set boundaries on those conversations and say, look, I just can't hear about this right now. Sure. It's, my own recovery is challenged by this and I really need to to prioritize that or whatever. But I think to the extent that you can have these conversations without getting sucked back in yourself, um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's important to, you know, just keep showing up and keep having that empathy and asking gentle questions and also like maybe sharing some of what you've gone through. If you have a similar experience where you can say, yeah, you know, I used to also like take a million supplements and think that, you know, that was what I needed to do. Or I was, I also, you know, really was down a rabbit hole of trying to find what was going to work for me and had so many symptoms and things that were missed or dis dismissed or misdiagnosed. And I, I really found so much empathy and support in like the, the alternative healthcare system. But, you know, for me, I mean, this is true for me personally. And I think maybe for many people who might be speaking to someone like that in their life, you know, if you can say for me, like, I realized that that was actually increasing my fear and anxiety and taking me further away from the things that I now know that are helpful for my conditions. And I've, you know, in, in like the years past kind of stripped away 
a lot of the interventions that I used to do and, and have stopped thinking about, you know, my health and my symptoms as a matter of personal responsibility and more as something I'm just going to have to live with and manage and how can I kind of make it, you know, how can I like have some acceptance around that and sort of um, have as much ease as possible with myself and treat myself as gently and compassionately as possible when navigating this, you know, that's one potential avenue you could go down. I mean, depending on the person that yeah. might not be a conversation that they're ready to have and that could feel, you know, even that could feel too um, aggressive or like critical. Right. But, you know, I think maybe just asking people like, is this helping you? Do you feel like this is helping or yeah. do you feel right? Like, do, and, and again, if you can bring it back to your own experience, something I often share is that I thought that some of these things were helping me initially. I thought it was like, oh, I cut out gluten and I feel so much better. But then I was like, is this really helping? I don't know. Cause now I have some of my same symptoms coming mm. back. I have some new symptoms yeah. I didn't have before. Like I'm actually just not sure. And even admitting that at the time was really hard. And I don't think I really did it because I had so many people in my life that I had convinced I had a gluten intolerance and that like bought special food for me and supported me in this journey of, you know, when we go out to restaurants, I'd have my little card about gluten that yeah. I'd give to the waiter, you know, all that stuff. And, and it mean, ain't cheap. Gluten-free ain't no. cheap. <laughs> yeah. And I should say for people with celiac disease, which is like a genuine yeah. genetic, you know, autoimmune condition, they do need gluten-free food. They do yeah. need those cards. They do need to be really careful. And so like, certainly I'm not saying, but you know, for that is like 1% or less of the population has celiac disease. Yeah. So that's a condition that's very real and very needs to be managed, but you know the vast majority of people do not have that yeah. and don't need to be avoiding gluten. And you know even the the existence of so-called non-celiac gluten sensitivity is very debated. And you know there's research suggesting that it doesn't really exist. And someone I interviewed for my first book was a researcher on that subject who who said as much. You know who said I don't think it really exists. Um, or if it does exist, it only affects a very, very tiny percentage of the population. But from her research, they didn't find that that existed, you know, in, in that group of people. Um, so, you know, I think that's really interesting to think about, too, is like the things that we believe about certain foods or treatments or whatever can have a real significant impact on our outcomes, right? There's something called, like, we know about the placebo effect where you believe something is yeah. positive and so you get the benefits. There's also the converse of the nocebo effect where you believe something is negative or harmful and so you actually experience worse symptoms and worse outcomes. And that's been the case. That was, you know, the researcher I was talking about who said non-celiac gluten sensitivity, Don't I don't think it really exists. Um, no. They found a strong nocebo effect in the people who believed they had non-celiac non gluten sensitivity. So people who believed they were being served gluten actually had more symptoms regardless of whether or not they were being served gluten, right? Because they had these pre-existing negative beliefs about gluten. Right. Oh my and, goodness. And also when you reintroduce a food that you haven't had in a long time, yeah. like if you think if you go to another country, sometimes you can like have a food mm -hmm. or a spice or something that you just haven't had. And so it has a real effect on your body mm -hmm. very straight away. So I think when people eliminate things and then they might eat it again, they'll always see, I was always mm -hmm. allergic to this. And you're like, mm -hmm. maybe not, maybe you're just a bit gassy because you haven't had it in ages, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's more as well, like the way you opened that up with, with the compassion, I think it's being compassionate to be like, sometimes we, we like to think, and I think this comes into wellness and diet culture all the time is you're wrong. I'm right. You're eating mm -hmm. the wrong thing. I'm eating the right thing. And even in the inverse of that, when someone is maybe quite stuck down the wellness trap, it's not being like, well, I'm right and you're wrong in the wellness trap. It's more mm -hmm. just being like, you know, does this make you feel better? I think that's such a nice question. Yeah. Because we can all have things that don't, like sometimes you might eat too much chocolate and it makes you feel terrible and people mm. don't mind admitting that. It's also okay to admit that it's like something you might have bought that's very <laughs> expensive. Just kind of isn't worth it and was a bit mm. of a stupid buy. Such totally. as vagina steamers, which they do sell on Goop, you know. Oh, <laughs> that's right. all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, and I think getting to the point where you can have those kinds of honest conversations requires a lot of empathy from your yeah. conversation partner. You know, like I think I wasn't about to admit that gluten being gluten-free didn't help me to someone who was like super skeptical in the first place. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like I think it was, it was only to the people who were like really supportive that maybe eventually I was able to be like, yeah, you know, I actually realized it wasn't gluten after all. And it, and it, 
you know, sometimes that was hard too because they were like, oh, but I bought you all this gluten-free stuff. And like, (laughs) I've gone gluten-free myself. You know, I convinced people too in my life to go gluten-free. And, you know, so there's that piece as well of like, if you've sort of spread this message in your community, like now you've got other people who are really bought in. And if you're sort of walking it back, it can be tough from that perspective as well. But I think, I think that brings up another piece that I try to remind people is like, you know, if something works for you and you feel it works for you and you feel like it doesn't have any downsides or whatever, great. Like, I'm not here to take that away. That's not, you know, what I'm really about with this book. But what I want to, you know, sort of encourage people to do is to not proselytize about the thing because you don't know if it's hap- if it's working for you because it just makes you feel happy and good and like you're you enjoy seeing this pretty crystal on your desk or whatever yeah. versus like does it have actually special energy that's like changing your frequencies or whatever probably not as <laughs> far as we know from science yeah. and yeah maybe there's something that science hasn't measured yet and who knows but like the fact that it's such a big unknown and the fact that it's like yeah, probably not based on current evidence is a good enough reason to kind of think, okay, well, if I'm enjoying this and just, you know, it's it's bringing me pleasure or whatever, it's bringing me some some kind of healing because because of whatever, because I like it, um, that's not good evidence to then go out and tell everybody that they should do it and share about it on social media and say, crystals changed my life or whatever, because, you know, you, you just don't really know that. It could just yeah. be that you enjoy them and that pleasure is is bringing you benefits in and of itself, you know. Well, folks, uh, that's Christy Harrison. Her new book, The Wellness Trap, is coming out April 25th in North America and April 27th in the UK. So pre-order it now. Or if you're listening in the future, pick it up. Uh, me and Grace absolutely love the book and we love chatting to you. Christy, where can people find you? Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. Um, people can find me online at my website, christyharrison.com, and they can find the book, like you said, at bookstores um, or online, christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. And then I also have a new podcast where Yes, I, I was listening. Yeah, thanks. I delve further into these conversations about wellness culture and, you know, all the sort of many directions that I go in the book. Um, so people can find that. It's called Rethinking Wellness, and you can just yes. search for that wherever you're listening to this podcast. I love the logo for the new podcast. It's like a glass of green juice, but the green juice is turning into a snake that's coming out to like bite you. That's so good. Thanks. That's yeah, I really, love it. I really <laughs> love that too. It was a great illustrator named Tara Jacoby who does like super cool stuff that's like, it reminds me a little bit of Ren and Stimpy from the 90s, that cartoon. Yeah. You know? um, oh, yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. Got, I'd love to see them in the wellness trap. What would they be like? Oh, my God. <laughs> Even more shriveled up, I think. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Bring them back. I love them. Well, thanks so much all for right. your time, Christy. For all of our Head Stuff Plus listeners, Grace and I have a special treat for you. We're going to do a bonus follow-up episode after this chat that you can find on Head Stuff Plus. Thanks for listening to this episode of FADCAMP. As always, we want to thank our producer, Darren Lee. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Great ratings and reviews really help more people find the show, and it would mean a lot to us. Make sure to share the episodes with friends and family or on your social media. Every listen helps. And we absolutely love hearing from our listeners. So please get in touch with any of your diet stories on fadcamppodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.